Hey, next week we'll be back in the Gospel of John, <coughs> chapter 12, so be sure to uh, look at that before uh, next week. But this week we're really excited to have Andrew Arndt with us, and uh, I, I think a lot of you know Andrew, right? Because Andrew is the pastor of Bloom, uh, the church that met here on Sunday nights most all of last year, and now they're meeting over at a Baptist church uh, near the Capitol. But Andrew's just a great guy, has an incredible gift. Um, we really appreciate him and his heart. He's married and has three children. One is just like, what, a few months old, right? A year and a half. A year and a half old. So, a year and a few months. Yeah, I'm really old. Time is like just <laughs> flying by. Seems like, anyway. Well, we're really glad to have Andrew here, so I want you to welcome him. Okay, and uh, Thank you. let's bless you. Well, uh, it's good to be here with you guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, very good. The first service, that was like pulling teeth. That was pulling teeth. Uh, anyway, this uh, past fall at Bloom, I took our congregation on a journey through the Sermon on the Mount in uh, the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7 believing very deeply um, that the Sermon on the Mount is very close to the heart of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. In a very real way, I think that what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount is that um, Jesus is trying to show us what it looks like when heaven is captured or when heaven captures the human life, when the human life is shaped by the reality that heaven is now among us. And so it took us about 14 or so weeks to get through there. And one of the highlights of our journey was our stop at the Lord's Prayer and thinking about what the Lord's Prayer was and what it means and what it represents for us and how it's related to the issue of discipleship and our following Jesus and what it symbolizes uh, for us. And so what I wanted to do with you this morning was essentially take you on an extended meditation through the Sermon on the Mount. I think that the Sermon on the Mount contains so much of what it means for us um, to be the people of Jesus living in this world. You know, it's um, in some ways actually even saying the Lord's Prayer um, is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, we don't have any recollection that Jesus himself actually prayed this prayer. In some ways, it might be more accurate to call the Lord's Prayer the disciples' prayer. There's this moment in the book of Luke where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Like we don't, we don't really know how to do this. And so could you show us how to pray? And what he gives them is essentially the content of this prayer. He says, if you want to know how to pray, here, this then is how you should do it. This should be on your lips. This should be in your heart. This should condition your concerns in the presence of God. And when you start looking at the history of the early church, it's very clear that from the very earliest days of the church, um, the people of God treasured these words. And when I think about what is in the words of the Lord's Prayer, it seems to me that part of the reason that the church must have treasured these words is because it's all there. Every concern that ought to occupy us as the people of God, everything that our minds should be geared towards as the people of God, like it's all right there. And I think that when we learn to embrace the Lord's prayer as a sort of way of praying or even as just the prayer, I think that it creates a sort of fertile imagination for understanding who God is and who we are and what we're supposed to be doing in the world. And so, before I lead you through a little meditation, uh, I think it would be good if we actually prayed the Lord's Prayer together. How about that, huh? So why don't you stand with me? And uh, if you're not familiar with the words, they're up on the screen. We'll say them together, and then we'll kick this off. Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we uh, gather before you this morning as your people. And um, we just ask right now that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's your spirit that comes to us and that awakens in us faith in the living God. It's your spirit who comes to us and awakens in us vision of who you are and what you're doing. It is your spirit who comes to us and causes our senses to come alive to the fact that God is here with us, among us, in us, near us, all around us. So we pray that we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you'd help us see things that we have not seen before. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be among us to break down every barrier of understanding that exists among us and to help us, like the blind men in the Gospels, who are constantly crying out, Lord, help us see, I want to see, I want to see, I want to see. We're just asking that we'd be able to see, help us see and believe and walk in the new world that you are unfurling in the resurrection of Christ. Grant that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. If you have Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, uh, or up on the screen, if not, I will just read it over you. Jesus begins his teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 by saying, this then is how you should pray. In other words, these are the concerns that ought to occupy your imagination when you come into prayer. This is what prayer ought to look like for you. This is what it ought to be all about. And what I love about Jesus is that the first place that he goes in his teaching on prayer is he wants us to make, he wants, he's very, very uh, concerned to know that we have an accurate understanding of who the God is that we're praying to. He wants us to know his God rightly. And so there was an ancient aphorism that used to float around in the early church, a saying that went lex orandi est lex credendi. It's Latin. And it just means that the way that you pray is the way that you believe. That the way that we pray flows out of our understanding of who God is. And yet I think it's also a two-way street, isn't it? That when we take true words on our lips about who this God is, that it forms when we're praying, that it forms our sense of belief in who this God is. So there's this very intimate relationship between what we believe and how we pray. Lex orandi, s lex credendi. And so Jesus wants to make very sure that we understand who this God is. Now I want you to close your eyes real quick, and I want you to conjure up no, I mean like really close your eyes, right? Okay, I want you to close your eyes and uh, I want you to conjure up your sort of visceral image of God. When you think of God uh, sort of in that spontaneous moment of just imagining God or when you're trying to pray or when you're worshiping or when somebody says the word God, um, call up that image in your imagination. Is the God that comes to mind when you think of God at all, what is that God like? Is that God petty? Is he disinterested? 
is he a sort of malevolent tyrant? Is that God a micromanager? In other words, he's just nitpicking the little details of your life, trying to find every fault. Is he like that? Is your God ambivalent? In other words, sometimes he's for you. Sometimes he believes in you. Sometimes he's seeking the best in you and for you. And other times he's moody, angry, irritated, disinterested. What is your God like? You can look back up. Jesus wants us to know that the God that we pray to is first and best known as a father, which I find fascinating because Jesus could have used any term he wanted to describe what his God is like. He could have come to us as God, a very God himself, trying to reveal to us what God is like. And he could have said, you know, when you begin praying, say, our intergalactic CEO who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, he could have done that. Or he could have said, you know, when you begin praying, you need to say, our president of the cosmos who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He could have said, oh, cosmic autocrat, hallowed be thy name. And he doesn't do any of those things. It's interesting to me that Jesus' first and best sort of concern for us when we come to prayer is not that we would know God as this sort of huge, overarching, gigantic tyrant, but that we would simply know him as Father which conveys to us a couple important sort of emotions. One emotion I think really is strength. That when dads are at their best in our lives, they are a sort of rock for us. They're a sort of fortress for us. I remember when I was a little kid, I thought, I honestly thought that my dad was Superman until we were riding three-wheelers up in the north woods of Wisconsin and, he, and I was riding with him and he tipped over. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you were, and like, I, I think that our gut sort of feeling towards dads is that dads can do anything. They're utterly trustworthy and utterly strong. And not only that, but that there's that sense of intimacy and closeness and love. Now, some of us, this is a hard image because we had dads that were disinterested and maybe they were really successful sort of in their business lives or whatever, but they were train wrecks in their personal lives or they just weren't a part of our lives at all. And yet Jesus comes to us and says, yeah, 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 I understand that you had a bad experience with some bozo out there who calls himself dad for you, but I want you to know that this God really is a father to you. And he lives up to the best expectations of what it means to be a father, that he loves you, that he really loves you, <laughs> and he's really for you, that he's really seeking the best in your life, and more than that, but he's really utterly trustworthy. You can always depend on him. You can always rely on him. So Jesus comes to us and says, whatever it is your image is of God, whether he's the cosmic autocrat or some big tyrant kind of floating around in outer space, like let's take a shotgun out and blow that thing up. Your God is Father, our Father. But it's not only that. Jesus wants us to know that our Father, the God that we pray to, dwells in a very specific location. Our Father in heaven right? Now, I think the translations actually kind of missed this a little bit because the Greek is not singular, in heaven. But the Greek is actually plural. It's in the heavens. Might be a better way to translate it. And for a lot of us, the image of God that we have, for whatever reason, is that God is this being, some kind of 
vastly superior to all other heavenly beings, heavenly being who's rattling around out in outer space. And he kind of, in heaven for us, is like God lives on this planet up there somewhere. You know, and this planet has streets paved with gold and it's flowing with milk and honey and there's a mansion with it. Heaven is like way up there. But that's not the understanding of God that Jesus taught. For Jesus, God doesn't just live on planets somewhere out in the vast interstellar distances, but God, for Jesus, dwells in the heavens and in the Jewish consciousness. And remember, Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't some white guy born in 1985. Uh, In the Jewish consciousness, the heavens, to say that God dwelt in the heavens meant that he was all around, that he filled up and inhabited all that was. And so in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been very familiar to a lot of Jews of Jesus' day, when the writer talks about the creation, it says that God made the birds of the heavens. Well, where do the birds live? They don't live out in the planets. They live in the very atmosphere surrounding your very body. And so Jesus wants us to know that whoever it is we're praying to, if we're praying his prayer, is we're praying to a father who loves us, who's utterly trustworthy, and who is closer to us than we are to our very selves. That he is nearer to us than our very life, that he is our very life, that he's nearer to us than our very Breath. Some of the passages out of the New Testament that speak to this that I love so much, out of Hebrews, you know, it says that, that he is sustaining all things by the word of his might. That all of this now is inhabited by the grace and the goodness. Everything that you see, everything that you feel, everything that you taste, everything that you touch, everything that you smell, all of it now being upheld by the great mercy, the great grace, the great goodness of God. I love Wendell Berry. Talks about people who disbelieve in miracles. And he says, you know, some people scoff that Jesus in the Gospels could have turned water into wine. They don't think that that's believable. He says, but they forget the greater and still continuing miracle by which, uh, by which water with a little soil and sunlight is turned into grapes. That God is already always right here, right now. Or Paul says in Colossians, you know, that, that everything is being held together by him. Or there's that moment in the book of Acts where he comes to these pagans who are worshiping this unknown God and he says, well, let me declare to you this unknown God, who this person is that you're worshiping. He says, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, he doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands as if he needed anything, because he made everything. And he's not served by human hands as if he just really needs something from us, but instead, he's the one who gives life and breath and everything else and every good thing to us. He said, from one man, he made every nation of men that they might inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them. You remember this? And the exact places where they should live. And he did this so that men would seek him and reach out to him and maybe find him, though he's not far, Paul says, from each one of us, for in him we, do you know it? Live and move. And in him we live and move and have our being. How do you think about God? Is God this distant being rattling around in outer space who's getting ready to shoot fish in a barrel? Or is he already always the gracious, benevolent goodness that is upholding all things and even your life right now? What is your God like? So Jesus wants us to have that straight in our heads when we come into prayer. He goes, you better know who you're talking to. 
You're not talking to a tyrant. You're not talking to a disinterested, deadbeat dad. You're talking to your father who dwells in the heavens. The next place that he takes us in the Lord's Prayer is he starts filling out the content of our actual praying. And the next three lines read, after our Father in heaven, they read, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I absolutely love this because it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount, or not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Lord's Prayer comes to us. And what it does to us is it won't let us stay in the small, contained, closed space of our little lives and our little sort of petty, narcissistic concerns. And so Jesus, as he's teaching us to pray, says, you know, after you've addressed God as Father and you've gotten that straight in your head, the first place that you go in prayer then is not, you know, our Father who art in heaven, my back hurts really bad and I got the golf tournament coming up, or our Father who art in heaven, please heal the tendonitis in my knee because I've got that half marathon, or our Father who art in heaven, I really could use a little extra money for this, or our Father who art in heaven, I hate that guy who works on the office opposite side of the office, do something about him. Like, that's not where Jesus takes us. Instead, the Lord's Prayer comes to us and it says, the first place that you go, the first sort of series of concerns that ought to occupy your imagination are not just your little narcissistic concerns, but it's the grand, wide purposes of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, the Lord's Prayer comes to us and says, I won't let you live in your closed, contained little space. I'm gonna yank you up into the vast, wide, cosmic purposes of this God who is now rescuing all things for himself. And I love that. And it seems like it's kind of a paradox because in the previous teaching on prayer, Jesus had said, you know, when you pray, you know, don't be like the hypocrites. They pray these big lofty prayers in front of people to get people to think that they're really amazing. And don't do that, go into your closet. And when you pray, don't keep babbling to God, but just present your request to God in simplicity of heart. And so it's this very closed kind of thing, you know, and your father who sees what is done in secret But then Jesus would say, you know, if you took a camera, right, into the prayer closet of somebody who's actually praying rightly, you'd find that the words that are on their lips concern realities so much greater than themselves. What if the story is not about you? I think that that's part of what the Lord's Prayer teaches us. And I think that what we find, and what a lot of you have found, is that as you let your life get caught up in the grand cosmic purposes of God, all of a sudden your life begins to take on this deep sense of meaning and purpose. And it's not about me, but it's about things bigger than me. And it's about the people around me. And it's about the world. And it's about what God is doing in the world. It's like all the great stories that you read about, you know, that so-and-so was at their home minding their own business one day and once upon a time, right? And all of a sudden, all these things start happening that take this character living this totally ordinary, mundane life, and it pulls this character up into something much bigger. And all of a sudden, the character's life begins to take on this deep sense of meaning because of the big story that they're a part of. And it's not about them. Their life has meaning 
because of the bigger story. At the end of The Hobbit, one of my favorite books by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, which is the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, uh, if you know the book at all, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins is living in Bag End in the Shire, right? And uh, Gandalf the wizard comes in one day and says, hey, I got this great thing that we're going to do. You got to come with me. And Bilbo's like, oh my gosh, no, I got this stuff that I've got to do. And, and Gandalf is like, come on, you lazy old hobbit. Come on, let's do this. And so he gets Bilbo caught up in this incredible story. And they go off to this faraway land to rescue some treasure from this dragon and give it back to the people who had been oppressed by this dragon and all this thing. And, and at the end of the story, Bilbo's gone home and things have settled down a little bit. And after a long time, Gandalf comes back with a report for Bilbo. And uh, I love this. He says, uh, Bilbo says, well, then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, said Bilbo. Well, of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck or just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo laughing and handed him the tobacco jar. I mean, that is, look, that, that, that is, this story is not about you. And God is very fond of you. And you are all very fine people. But the story is about something so much bigger than you. And the Lord's Prayer calls us into that. It calls us into the story of the God who's rescuing all things. And he's setting the captives free. And he's feeding hungry people and making sure that thirsty people have something to drink. And he's clothing the naked. And he's bringing justice where there was injustice and truth where there's lies and light where there's darkness. I mean, come on! How, how can you live in this limited, self-contained, self-enclosed, narcissistic space praying a prayer like this? You can't. Jesus calls us up into the great cosmic purposes of God. Now, what I love about this is that, you know, when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, I think that there are a couple of senses. When we pray this prayer, let thy kingdom come, I think that there are a couple of senses in which this is true. First of all, um, there's that sort of end of all things sense, right? That part of what we're longing for when we long for the kingdom of God to come is we're longing for that end of all things. Like Jesus, bring the climax to the story and bring it quickly. Come with your rule and your reign and your justice and your righteousness and, and end everything that's bad and corrupt and wicked and twisted about our world. Come with your kingdom. And that's always the cry of the church, isn't it? Come, Lord Jesus. Is that, that's part of that is the anchor of Christian hope that he would come again. But Jesus taught an understanding of the kingdom that wasn't just about that over there. But Jesus said, you know, remember there was that one time in Luke where he says, you know, the kingdom of God will not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. He says, for the kingdom of God is among you. Or there was another moment in the gospels where Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is, uh, how should we describe it? He says, it's like yeast that a woman took, it's just a little bit, and she put it in the dough. It's a large amount of flour. She put it in there and she started working in it. And all of a sudden the yeast started working its way through all the dough. Or he said, what is the kingdom of God like? Or what should we use to describe it? Oh, I know. It's like a mustard seed. It's like the smallest thing that you plant in the ground. And yet when it grows, it becomes this huge thing. So much so that the birds of the air perch in its branches. In other words, what Jesus taught us about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God isn't just over there. But the kingdom of God is right here, right now. 
So I think when disciples pray this prayer, if they're praying it with any degree of authenticity, they're not just praying, God, end it. <laughs> Bring the culmination of the story right now. But they're also praying right now, in this time between the times, right now, in the space that I live, in the place I inhabit, the stuff that touches my life, I'm praying that you would help me live as a sort of harbinger of the kingdom of God. That all of your goodness and all of your love and all of your purposes and all of your grace would come spilling into the world through my life. There's that great verse in the Old Testament. It says, every place on which your foot shall tread, I shall give it to you. What if that's what God wants to do through your life? That every place that you go and every space that you inhabit would somehow be a place in which the kingdom of God resides. Remember Paul said, he said that we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. What if that's what God wants to do? That, that in our lives that we live shaped by the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, scattering the seeds of the kingdom until Christ returns. And it's not just, you know, sometimes I think when we think about these issues, the kingdom of God and the will of God and the ways of God and the hallowing of the divine name, we think about all of these big things. And so we think about, okay, so I'm gonna participate in this, right, by helping to end AIDS and injustice here and these huge like humanitarian things. And I'm sure that it includes all of that. But I think that it's also in the little tiny things. I've been reading recently about the life of St. Francis of Assisi and how he went about just with his band of brothers and like their whole thing was like just doing kindness and working mercy and doing good to people and seeing the kingdom of God flower up in their midst through it. I think, I think that's what God wants to do through your life. My uh, wife and I, she, we've uh, been living here about a year and a half now. When we first moved here, we, uh, we rented a house and, uh, while we were waiting for the church to get a little bit stronger and such. And uh, the church got a little bit stronger, a little bit more financially healthy. So we bought a house, yeah, which is awesome. And uh, so our last couple days in the house that we were renting, um, I just get really sentimental about goofy things. So I'm sitting in the basement of that house our last couple days in there. And uh, I'm praying and just kind of reminiscing on our time in there and like, we didn't love that house very much, uh, but for us it represented so much that was very good and right. It represented for us this sort of transition into full life in Denver. It represented this beginning kind of moment of, of us transitioning into the community that we're a part of, Bloom, and all the good things that God did there. And we had house church there a bunch, so there was all of that kind of nostalgia. And then our daughter, Bella, took our, her first steps there, you know, so there was some sense of emotional attachment for me. And so I'm sitting there in the basement our last couple of days there and uh, I'm praying and I, I don't know, like it was around the Halloween season. And so I was watching all these shows on TLC about haunted houses and stuff. And uh, I don't know, maybe that was in my mind or something. And as I started praying, I just started praying, God, so we're leaving this place now and we're moving on. But I want our presence in this house to have meant something. So I pray that as we leave, would you just leave behind residues of your grace? 
and your goodness and your mercy and your peace, would you, and I don't know if this is right to ask, but would you let this place be haunted by the Holy Spirit, Lord, so that when people come and live in this house and do whatever they do in this house, that there would be an influence on this house that is here because we were here, that we left behind residues of the Holy Spirit who awakens peace and who awakens love and who awakens joy and who creates community. Would, would you do that, Lord God? See, what if that's what God wants to do through you? In the apartment that you live in, the house that you live in, the block that you live on, the job that you have, the places that you shop, maybe what God's wanting to do is bring the kingdom of God through your life. Can I get an amen? Now, one of the things that I find interesting, particularly about this piece of the Lord's Prayer, is that, and one of the things that I told our congregation about was that, um, you know, in Greek thinking and writing, and the New Testament was written in Greek, when you're building an idea, you don't, um, you know, you don't like say a bunch of things, and then, okay, here, the end thing, this is what it's really all about, you know. What Greek thinkers and writers do is they build from the middle out. And so if you want to know what the Greek thinker, the writer, was trying to get at, what he was really concerned about, or where the secret kind of key of the passage is, more often than not, it's like in the middle. So it's the middle sentence, or the middle word, in the middle of the sentence, or whatever. And, and so uh, as, we, as I told our congregation in the fall, uh, for me, when I think about what discipleship's all about, following Jesus is all about, I think the center of that is the Sermon on the Mount that it's all right there. But what's funny is that when you start counting up the verses in the Sermon on the Mount, what you find approximately in the center of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on prayer. Seems as though Matthew is saying that prayer is the thing that drives the life of discipleship forward, that that sort of mystical union with God, that connection with God, that intimate, like this isn't just a bunch of stuff that we do, but it's a relationship through which all of this stuff emerges. So the center of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on prayer, but what's super fascinating is that the center of Jesus' teaching on prayer is the request that the kingdom of God would come that the kingdom is what drives our prayer life forward and our prayer life is what drives engagement with the Sermon on the Mount forward, that what God wants to do through us is bring his kingdom. Next line in the Lord's Prayer reads, and I love this, it says, give us today our daily bread. I love that because Jesus, after he initiates us into the big, wide, cosmic purposes of God, it's like he turns on a dime and he goes, okay, now after you've thought about all of those big things out there that God is doing, now it's like you're in a position to begin thinking about your own needs and thinking about them rightly. And what I love about this is that Jesus actually does think that our needs belong in the presence of God. Sometimes I think we get caught up in the lofty language of the scriptures too, you know, give us today our daily bread, right? And it's so like pious and high in the sky kind of language. Uh, and I think if you were to translate this into very sort of colloquial language, like on the ground, what's the emotion behind this language? I think that the emotion behind this would be, um, God, so we're hungry today. Like we have very real needs today, God. There's food that must go on the table today. There's bills that must be paid today. There's sickness and hurt in our bodies today. There are concerns that we have, anxieties that we have, fears that we have that are very real. All of those things we have needs 
today. And Jesus wants us to know that those needs belong in the presence of God. That God is not so lofty and exalted that he's not concerned about those things. He just wants us to fix ourselves in his purposes rightly so that we begin to think about those things aright. Bread in the scriptures is always a metaphor for the basic needs of our lives. And Jesus wants us to know that his God is concerned about all those things. That he's concerned that we eat. He's concerned that we drink. He's concerned like what touches us touches him. The pain in our bodies touches him. The fear of our lives touches him. The anxiety that consumes our souls, that touches him. And Jesus wants us to know that our God is trustworthy when it comes to those things. This fall at Bloom, I, uh, I had our congregation, as we were kind of working through Jesus' teaching on prayer, um, I had our congregation just make up prayer lists. <laughs> Such a simple thing, you know, but just things that they actually wanted to see God come through on, things that they needed, whether they needed a job or a relationship to break through or healing in their body or whatever it was. And I, I just basically said, my challenge to them was, I, I think that we have this tendency sometimes in the church um, to pray prayers that allow us to maintain a sense of plausible deniability about whether or not they were actually happened, okay? So it's like we come to God in the morning and it's, um, it's uh, so God, you know, there's all this stuff going on. We have all these needs and we just, we just offer these needs up to you, Lord. And we just trust that you will take care of them by your glorious riches in Christ Jesus, right? I mean, it's just all, it's this, it's like so out there and nonspecific. Or, you know, I remember being in seminary and, and sitting in a class and they were fielding prayer requests one day. And uh, one of the prayer requests was for this guy who's, uh, who had a friend whose brother had a brain tumor. And so the request was, you know, can we pray for the guy with the brain tumor? And so another guy in the class fields the prayer request and he goes, <laughs> he goes, God, we just pray that you would fill the family with a sense of peace and comfort. And we prayed that you would be with this man who's struggling with the brain tumor. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I'm sitting in the back. And mind you, I grew up Pentecostal charismatic, so we think that we can do anything with our faith. And so I, I was irritated sitting in the back of the room. And I go, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't you actually pray for the tumor? I mean, that was the specific request, wasn't it? And how would you know whether or not God actually gave this family the sense of peace and serenity? I mean, talk about plausible deniability. You know, it's like we don't have enough faith to ask God for the things that are pertinent to our lives. And so as I'm working through this stuff with our congregation, I remember sitting in my basement one morning just kind of putting this stuff together and I was thinking, if my kids talk to me the way that most of us talk to God, I would think that something was seriously defective in my relationship with them. So I have boys, four and a half and three and a half, right? These guys are asking for stuff all the time. And if some morning my boys come to me and go, Dad, may we eat today? I go, what? What have you done with my son? I mean, what? 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 Or, Dad, may we have fun today? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, sure. What kind of fun do you want to have? Do you want to play video games? Do you want to go to the park? Do you want to, what do you want to do? I would think that there was a serious breakdown in my relationship with my children if they 
made requests of me in which they could maintain some kind of plausible deniability. And good thing for them, they have more faith in me than most of us have in God. Dad, I want tricks. Okay. Dad, I want to play Mario Kart. Have at it. Most of us think that we're doing God a favor by praying prayers in which we can maintain this plausible deniability. So we, we pray these vague, ridiculous, faithless prayers about the things that are touching our lives, and we think that God is going, oh, thank you so much for not getting all up in my grill about that stuff. Don't you understand that your God is not the fate of the philosophers who's just kind of put things together and now it's all just kind of happening. The scriptures present God as a being who lives in a real relationship with the world that he has created and with people. And if you have spent any time digging through the scriptures, you know that people influence God. Their pain influences God. How about the beginning of the book of Exodus? And their cry reached heaven into his ears. He heard their groaning and he decided to come down and help. That is what God is like. I wonder how many of you don't have the same kind of confidence in God that most children have in their parents. I'm saying that that's not like a gold star for you that you pray prayers like that. I'm saying that you need to start trusting God for daily bread, for the things that you need, believing that God is good enough to come through on those things. And I find it interesting, too, that when Jesus introduces us into the whole notion of praying for specific things, you know, he doesn't say, um, so pray, give us this day, Lord, our daily humongous mountain of bread so that we can put it in plastic bags and stick it in the freezer for later, but it's just, it's like daily bread, right? It's like the stuff that you need today, right now, the things that you need. Because I think that God always wants us to be in a position in which we trust him. And most of us, I would say, when we do pray prayers, we're actually praying, some of the prayers that we pray, we pray because we actually want to graduate from having to trust God, right? And so we pray, God, just give me that breakthrough job where I make $200,000 a year because you don't want to actually have to trust God anymore about anything, and how honored, how much, how eager do you think God is to grant you things in which you don't have to trust him anymore? God always wants his people to live in a state of dependence on him. Whether you realize it or not, dependence on God is the essence of our relationship with him. We will never stop having to trust him and love him. So when we pray prayers, you can't pray prayers that graduate you out of trust. God will always keep you in a position where you have to keep trusting him. There's that great moment in the Old Testament where the people of God have just come out of Egypt. Remember the story? And they're hungry. They kind of start bickering against Moses. And Moses goes, oh, you ungrateful people. You know, I can't believe that God delivered you from Egypt. And uh, wait a minute. I guess if you don't eat, you will die. I'm God. So can you do anything about this? And God goes, yeah, I would love to do something about that. Every day, every morning. There's going to be like bread on the ground for you. And it's not going to be the most elaborate, interesting, tasty bread you've ever had in your life, but it will be enough for you. And don't try to store it up because you're storing it up is really an act of unfaith. Just trust that every day when you go out, you'll be able to gather. And the scripture says that he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little and everybody had just as much as they needed. It's a funny thing with God, how he does that. Some of you that have walked with God for any length of time know that God is very much like this, isn't he? He's not often tremendously early <laughs> with the request, but 
he's not often very late, if late at all, either. His sense of timing is such that we got to trust him up until the very last moment. I told you about this house that we bought recently. Part of the trick for us was that we had just signed a, another year lease on the house that we were renting. And the break lease fee was going to be three months rent, which was going to be more money than we had sitting around. And, and so, but we just felt like the time was right for us to buy a house. And we did it in faith and we got it. And, and uh, so, but then there's this bill out there. And so we were going to have to pay the nearly $4,000 bill to get out of our house unless we could find somebody to take over the lease for us by November 1st. So all month long, the month of October, we're praying, God, November 1st, we need to get a renter by November 1st. God, we thank you that you've got a renter lined up for us November 1st, you know, all that sort of thing that you pray. And so the whole month long, you know, we're praying November 1st, but we're really hoping that October 14th would be like a lot better, God. So November 1st, but October 15th, right? October 3rd, November 1st, but October 15th, right? And so the 15th, 16th, 17th, 20th, right? Pretty soon we're getting down to the end of the month. We're almost out of the house. The 30th rolls around. That was a weekend, Halloween weekend. That was our weekend for moving. So we got out of the house and now we're down to like 48 hours. So we're getting stuff set up in the new house. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking in our heads. You're going to have to pay like $4,000 unless you get a renter. And there were a couple promising prospects and nobody making any phone calls. And so Monday morning, November 1st rolls around. And uh, I get up and we're kind of milling around the house and getting some business together. And Mandy goes, um... So Mandy's my wife. What, so what are we going to do about that house? I got, I don't know, um, turn in the keys and wave the white flag of surrender. I mean, there's no crying over spilled milk. You know, we'll figure out a way to pay it somehow. And so I grab the keys and all the paperwork that I need to get out of the lease and pay that thing off. And I'm driving to the property management company office, right? I mean, like the day of, right? I'm driving there and all of a sudden, uh, oh, actually I was on the phone with one of my brothers talking about some football stuff. And uh, I see this number that I'd never seen before. I go, hey, I got to take this call. So I take the call. Hello. And the voice on the other end goes, hi, this is blah, 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 blah. And we, um, we came and visited the place a few days ago and we got sick over the weekend. So we didn't do the paperwork, but is it still available? I go, Yes! <laughs> right? She comes over and grabs an application, fills it out, and the thing got taken care of, and we got out of the lease, and like, right then! And I'm not saying that God is like some genie in a bottle, right? And you guys that have, any of you that have walked with God for more than an hour know that that isn't the case. Sometimes you lift things up to God, and you think that you need these things taken care of, and it just doesn't happen. And that's okay. God is free. And sometimes his ways boggle us and baffle us and we don't know what he's doing and we just have to surrender and trust and know that even though the thing didn't work out, but, but look, 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 God really does want you to trust him for things. Give us this day our daily bread. It's right for you to bring those concerns into the presence of God. Next line of the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only part, by the way, of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus actually elaborates on. In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Which sounds like super harsh, right? And so we're standing before God at the great white throne judgment. He's going through all this stuff. And so, Bill, you forgot to forgive Bob. That one time, you're done, you're out. Ah, and I don't think that God is like that. I think that what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom 
that you are a part of, the kingdom that God has invited you into, the kingdom that God is bringing right now, right here through my very person, it is by its very definition a kingdom of grace and mercy and overriding love and forgiveness and generosity. So for you to hold somebody hostage for something that they did to you in light of the incredible goodness and grace of God that he's shown over your life is simply to opt out of the kingdom altogether. It's not as though God's just keeping this record of all the people that we've forgiven or not. It's just that it's like the kingdom is a kingdom of grace. So to not forgive somebody, to not let somebody go who's wounded you, to not make the effort to let the toxin and the bitterness of being hurt be released from your soul is really just to say, so that whole thing that you're doing, God, kingdom of grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace and love and generosity, I just don't want any part of that at all. See, some of you, the reason that you don't experience God more is because your heart is closed with bitterness towards other people. And this kingdom is like a river that flows through us. You dam that sucker up and all of a sudden the water starts getting real stinky and tepid and filthy. It's got to keep moving through you. And so as the forgiveness comes into your life and the mercy comes into your life and you taste that of God, the natural response and the thing that the scriptures enjoin us to do over and over again is to just be a part of that gesture, to step into the dance of God's grace and forgiveness as we are called to and then step out when it's appropriate, to step in and step out, to let it move through us. Paul says, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also ought to forgive so the things that occupy our imagination in prayer, when we come into prayer for praying the Lord's Prayer, is first, it's the Father dwells in the heavens. He's near us. He's inviting us into his big wide purposes. He's concerned about our lives and that he's also inviting us into this very same act and gesture of grace and generosity. The next line of the Lord's Prayer reads, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, which again is I think, I think it's another moment where sort of the loftiness of the language obscures the passion of us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, which is so, uh, it's just so pious sounding, right? Which is not bad, but it's pious. It's very pious language. And the heart behind it, which I absolutely love is this. And what I think Jesus is calling us into is uh, if you were to just like really break it down, I think it would be like, um, and God we just don't want to fail you. After all is said and done, do you've taken care of those things and let us, but we just don't let us fail you. We don't want to let you down. I want my life to be pleasing to you. I want my life to be everything before you that you've called it to be. Remember, Jesus actually teaches us that at the end of all things, the thing that we should be looking for from God is well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that in you? When Paul talks about living a life with an eager desire to please him. Lately, I've been reading the poems of the 16th century Spanish mystic, St. John of the Cross. And St. John of the Cross always talks about how when love, the love of God uh, uh, overshadows us and falls upon us that the reflexive reaction of our souls is to give it back, to give it back, to give it back. 
And I think that's for those that have tasted of the kingdom, for those that have tasted of the mercy and the love and the goodness and the grace of God, the very uh, visceral desire is, so what can I do for you? How can I please you? I don't want to fail you. I don't want to let you down. Is that in you? Is that in you? When was the last time you felt the pang of that in your soul? I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fail you. It's true, isn't it? That disciples sometimes get led into times of testing and times of trial. And God is okay with that. And the scriptures say that when we're in those times of testing, those times of trial, those times of temptation, right, that we're supposed to count it all joy and continue to persevere, knowing that perseverance works character and all of those things. But what I love about this is that um, Jesus doesn't tell us, like, even though trials do come, even though temptations do come, even though times of testing do come, I love the humility of this. That Jesus doesn't say, so, you know, since uh, the Apostle Paul says that times of testing are a really good thing and they're strengthening for your faith, you ought to ask for times of testing all the time. And so, God, because I'm a super disciple, I pray that you would bring on the times of testing. Like, Jesus, I think, wants us to be in a place where we know our sense of limitation. And we know the places in which we're prone to fail. We know the places in which we're prone to let God down. And so the request that floats up from our souls is, lead us not into temptation. Don't bring us into places where we're prone to failure. But just deliver us from the evil one. What a great way to end this prayer. And the traditional ending of the prayer of course, is thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Which I think is just a way of saying, God, after all of this, we surrender our lives and the future of the world and everything that concerns us into your keeping. It all belongs to you. We trust your good governance and grace, and we know that you'll work all things together for good. For thine is the kingdom. You're in charge. It all belongs to you. Yours is the power and the glory. Why don't you stand with me? And uh, as we move towards communion, I want to read you uh, this paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer written by Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, which is sort of an extended um, reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, let's just prepare our hearts to receive communion. Willard writes, the English wording long familiar from the King James Version is a treasure now interwoven with Western consciousness. It may be of some use in practice, however, to reword the prayer to capture better the fullness of its meaning and its place in the gospel of the kingdom. And so here's his paraphrase. He says, Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in exactly the way it's done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today and forgive us our sins and impositions on you as we are forgiving of all who in any way offend us. Please don't put us through trials, but deliver us from everything bad because you are the one in charge and you have all the power and the glory too is all yours forever, which is just the way we want it. He continues, just the way we want it is not a bad paraphrase for amen. What is needed at the end of this great prayer is a ringing affirmation of the goodness of God and of God's world. If your nerves can take it, you might occasionally try whoopee. I imagine God himself will not mind.
Lord Jesus, we bring ourselves, actually we don't bring ourselves, you draw us by your grace to this place of divine mercy and love and forgiveness and hope and restoration. Thank you for this great prayer that you've given us that orients us rightly within the kingdom, within the Father's world, as the song says, this is my Father's world. So we know that we're citizens of the Father's world and our desire is to just live rightly and pray rightly and to be everything that you've called us to be within it. So as we come to this table, we ask that you would recapture our imagination for what is right and good and true and beautiful about the world. And that is that the sun has been given, the kingdom has come, resurrection is here, hope is on offer, the heaven is at hand. Fix us firmly within that reality. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said, I tell you the truth. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of my Father. So Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, we look forward to the day in which you come with your kingdom and your power and your glory, in which you make all things new, and in which we sit down and eat with you at the table, the table of the kingdom, the table of your Father. Thank you for your mercy. I want to invite you to come forward and receive communion. There's wine and grape juice, as you're accustomed to. And uh, let's just continue to worship God. Well, why don't you join me again one last time, and let's lift up the words of the Lord's Prayer again on our lips as our prayer for this day and for this week and for this year. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you.